Well, good morning. I add my greeting to Tim's from earlier in the service. My name is Nick, and it is good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. We are uh, continuing our sermon series that we started last week in 1 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, I invite you please to turn with me there. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through the first part of verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through verse 5. And I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Out of respect for it, I'll pray, and I'll invite you to be seated. Again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. This is God's holy and inspired word. He's given it to us that we might know Him, love Him, and learn how to live in light of His love for us. Let me pray and I'll invite you to be seated. Lord, our souls cling to dust, so we ask that you give us life according to your word. Help us to understand your ways, and we will meditate on your wondrous works, especially the glorious work of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Christians ought to be the most thankful people on earth. We, of all people, have the most to be thankful for, which means we ought to be the most thankful people who are alive. We ought to express our gratitude to God for all of the gifts that He has given to us, and that certainly and most uh, explicitly includes the gift of salvation. The gift of salvation should fill our hearts with thanksgiving. Thankfulness to God for the grace that transforms us and then defines everything about us for the rest of our existence. In our passage this morning, and really all of chapter one, which of course we stop short, but all of chapter one and our text this morning, the main point is we give thanks. And uh, the English breaks this up, but this is one long sentence in the Greek. And the, the main point of the entire section is we give thanks. But it's also this little portion of the chapter is also about assurance. Assurance of salvation. Likely what happened was Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica, and Timothy comes back to Paul in Corinth and says, these folks are wondering if they're really Christians. And so Paul starts his letter by assuring them of salvation. How can we be sure of our salvation? This is a question that many believers have asked. This is a question that some of you have asked expressed a struggle with as I have talked with you. How can we be sure that we are saved? How can we be sure that we are a Christian? Well, our text gives us three ways. 
So these are our three headings for today. The first one we find in verse 3, and I summarized it this way, follow the fruit. Follow the fruit. The second is in verse 4, remember the author. Remember the author. And third, behold the power. That's verse 5. So follow the fruit, remember the author, and behold the power. Let's start with follow the fruit. Paul and those who are with him, Silas and Timothy, but primarily Paul, continually, constantly mentions the Thessalonians in his prayers, and these two men join with him. This is the occasion for Paul to give thanks. It's in the context of prayer, of constant, continual prayer, and they're mentioning the church in those prayers. So they together are praying for the church. They're praying before our God and Father. Now, that three-letter word, our, is huge coming from Paul to the church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. I mentioned this last time, but it's worth mentioning again, perhaps from a little bit different angle. Paul is, as he writes in Philippians 3, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is as zealous as a Pharisee. He persecutes the church. He is of the tribe of Benjamin. If there were ever somebody you would put on a pedestal, it was him. And here he is, saved by grace through faith, now writing to a bunch of Jews and Gentiles and referring to the God of heaven and earth as our God. The walls of hostility have crumbled down in Jesus Christ like the walls of Jericho did in the conquest of Canaan. There is no more separation, not ethnic separation, not gender separation, not slave or free, all are one in Christ. He's also emphasizing, Paul is, that we live a life together as Christians. We are a community. We are a family. God is our God, and He is our Father. This has to do with adoption. Now, for those of you who are waiting for that, that comes in our second point. Let's keep moving. We'll come back to adoption. And what is Paul and these two men, what are they doing? What are they praying for? What are they praying? Well, they're remembering three things. And here's the follow the fruit. The first thing that they are praying for is the work of faith. Look at verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Faith. Now, this is not suggesting that faith has a work aspect to it to earn salvation. Paul is very clear. The Bible is very clear about this. Paul is saying that good works will always follow faith. Faith must come first. It is a gift of God, but works will always follow the one who has faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Many of you could quote this, for by, grace that you have, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And all of us love those two verses. And we often forget verse 10. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Tim read earlier in our service from 2 Peter chapter 1. There's many things that we could footstomp 
in that section. Here's one. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Those virtues that were read prior to. So God has prepared for us to walk in virtuous living. And then we are responsible to be diligent to do so. James says faith without works is dead. Here's a summary. We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Saving faith is always accompanied by good works. So faith without works proves to be a dead faith, not a living faith. The second thing that Paul says about the church of Thessalonica is that he commends them or remembers before God their labor of love. Labor of love. A Christian without, or a Christian who says that they love but does not have labor that accompanies their love is a liar. First John 4 tells us. Paul is following, again, the fruit to help these Christians wrestle with assurance of salvation. He remembers their labor of love. Now, we don't we should not confuse this labor of love with the 21st century use of that same word, right? When we say, oh, it's just a labor of love, oftentimes what we're saying is that we did something for someone or did something good and nobody noticed. And so when somebody finally did notice, we say, oh, you know, it's just a labor of love. It's all good. I don't need praise. That's not what's happening here. This usage is talking about deeds that are stemming from love and those deeds are costly, those deeds could lead and sometimes do lead to discomfort, to hardship for the laborer. It's costly. They may be laboring to the point of difficulty. It's not, it's not something that we don't get praise or reward for. It has to do with the cost of love. And it's always based for the Christian on the love that we have received from God. He loved first. And he proved that love by sending his only begotten son. If you want to know what costly love looks like, there's your, there's your example. Nothing that we could ever do could remotely begin to compare. The love of God for us is immeasurably higher and more costly than a lifetime of love or an eternity of love that we can give. So the question of application here is, when was the last time you reflected on that reality? That if you're a believer, God loved you so much that his only son left the throne of God to come, live, die, and rise again, that you might experience that love and be forgiven of your sin. When, I know that this is, this is the heart of the gospel, but have you... Have you meditated on that reality any time in the recent past. And that should motivate us to engage in labors of love for others. So the meditation isn't just for your benefit. The meditation is for the benefit of others as well. The cost of following Jesus is that we forget about our life and die to ourselves. And that's the same thing that we're called to do in love for others as well.
The third thing Paul is remembering and thanking God for is their steadfastness of hope. Now, this is put last in this section because it's probably the climax in Paul's mind for this letter. Oftentimes, we see this triad, faith, uh, faith, hope, and love in that order. Faith first, hope, then love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says the greatest of these is love. Here, he's putting hope last to emphasize it for a church who was wondering about things like the last days, about things like when is Jesus coming back, things like when our loved ones die, what happens next? They're thinking about ultimate, eternal things. And so Paul says, I'm remembering your steadfastness in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. This hope is especially used by Paul when he has the consummation of the kingdom of God in mind. Christ comes back in all of his glory. You, church, are steadfast in your hope for that day. You want to know if you're a Christian? Follow your faith and your hope, and your love. Now, faith, hope, and love are invisible. And so the emphasis, the direct object of all of these things is actually the labor, the work, and the steadfastness. Paul is emphasizing the labor, the work, and the steadfastness. The invisible triad becomes visible through the ways that the church is applying those things about the Christian life. So our faith and our love and our hope must also be accompanied by these same virtues, these same qualities. Am I really saved? Can I really have assurance of my salvation? So whether you're, you're rejoicing this week or you're struggling this week, friends, Look at the fruit. Think of the fruit that God is producing in you now. Remember it and thank God for it. Like Paul is thanking God for the fruit of his loved church. Let's move on to the author of faith. Remember the author of faith. So part of assurance of our salvation is looking at the fruit that the Lord is producing in us. It's also looking at him, to him as the author of our faith. If your salvation depended on you to get it, to maintain it, to keep it, you have no assurance. But it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the one who is called the author and perfecter of our faith, speaking of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. And since our faith and the assurance of our faith depends on him, that means we can take it to the bank and every time we write a check, it's cashed. It's never bounced. Because it starts by grace, not works. Our faith starts by grace, not works. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2.9. And Paul writes in verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We could spend three weeks in that line. We won't. We'll spend four minutes. 
How do they, how do they know that, that these people have been chosen by God and they are loved by Him? Well, verse 4 points us back to verse 3. The evidence is obvious because their faith and hope and love are marks of someone who has been chosen and who is loved by God. Verse 4 builds upon verse 3. And, and, and Paul calls them brothers. He uses this word a lot. It gets at the family. My family in Christ. I know that God has chosen you, that he loves you. And that means that we have all been adopted into his family and we can call upon him as our father and we can look to Jesus as our brother. And we look to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ as we demonstrate this faith, love, and hope together. Most of us have earthly friends and family. And when we come to faith, we gain more than earthly friends and family. We gain eternal, everlasting friends and family. Others who have been adopted into the same family. And then he says they are loved by God. I couldn't help but think of Ephesians 1 this week. Don't turn there. I'll beat you there. Here are a few verses from Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Listen to these glorious words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's a, that's a paragraph packed full of goodness. So let me highlight some of the words. Love, blessing, choosing, glory, grace, beloved, for you, from before the foundation of the world and into eternity if you belong to God in Christ. That's love. Before there was time or space, before there was ever a single creature, God loved his children enough to predestine them for adoption out of bondage to their sin and to give them his son as a ransom. The doctrine of election is not evidence of a God who's angry, a God who's unjust, a God who's spiteful or rude or unfair. It is a doctrine that highlights God's love for undeserving sinners who have no claim to grace or mercy. So we should not only be the most thankful people on the earth, we should also be the most humble people on the earth. Because God chose us despite us. And remember, we're circling the waters of assurance of salvation in these few verses. How can we know if we're saved? If you've got the right fruit, verse 3, it means that you're connected to the right root, verse 4. The root matters. The, roots, the root is key. Our salvation began with the love of God before time existed. 
And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know and receive that good news. And he wants you to know and receive that good news when you're struggling to know if you belong in God's family. Now, our human-to-human relationships are often affected, sometimes tainted by what we've done, what we've left undone, what we've said, what we haven't said. But that's not how God's electing love works. See, if it started before anything even existed, then what we do, if God has set his love upon us in Christ and has chosen us out of the world, it doesn't depend on us. God's electing love is based on what the triune God has done, not what we've done. The Father chooses us and gives us to the Son. The Son willingly comes and dies in our place. And the Spirit applies that work. It's it's the triune God loving us and saving us. But still we wonder. We wonder at times. So don't miss the fact that the doctrine of election is all over our Bibles. In the Old Testament, it appears over and over again. And in the New Testament, it appears over and over again so that we would remember, so that we would read it, so that you would hear it on days like today, and that we would receive it. If the sovereign God has chosen you in Christ, and if his redemptive love never fails, and if your little branch your little itty-bitty branch that's connected to the vine has even the smallest amount of fruit in it. That means that you are saved by the blood of Christ and you can never be unsaved when it is Christ's blood that presents you back to the Father. Many people misunderstand this wonderful doctrine and time does not permit us to defend it this morning, but I pray that you receive it afresh with joy and thanksgiving and humility. Our third section is behold the power. Behold the power. This is verse 5. Look down at verses 4 and 5 again. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. You've probably heard the saying that goes something like this, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. It's attributed to a couple of different people so far as I can tell in history. And those people may have understood understood the gospel, but that saying misunderstands what the gospel is fundamentally. The gospel fundamentally is is by definition an announcement. It is an announcement of good news by one who was heralding that good news. It is not by definition something that we live. It is by definition something that we proclaim, that we announce. Now there is also, of course, as verse 3 suggests, a living out of our faith. But the gospel... The good news is an announcement. And that announcement is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserved to die, and that he rose again that we might have a faithful high priest who went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for our sin, to not just 
cover it until the next year that he would go back. No, he went once, died in our place, and sprinkled us clean forever when the Holy Spirit applies his redemptive benefits to our account. That's the good news. And when we When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are then blameless, holy, and forgiven, and then have the power to live in new life, accepted by God, redeemed, ransomed, reconciled. That's the gospel. And so the message that they preached was that. We should be reminded that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.6. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is helpful as we think about our role in preaching the the gospel to the lost. It would, on one on one hand, we would we think it would be helpful if there was a, a, a blue flashing dot on the foreheads of all the elect, and then we could just preach the gospel to the elect, and they would come to faith. The problem with that is that we would put pressure upon our ourselves to to winsomely and beautifully share the gospel, and then we wouldn't rely on the Spirit of God to do the work that He's promised to do. Look at the rest of verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word. It has to come in word, but not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Thomas Watson, Puritan, said this, the minister knocks on the door of men's hearts. The spirit comes with a key and opens the door. We should faithfully knock. We should faithfully preach the gospel. But without the spirit, and without his power, and without his conviction, the, the, the door of people's hearts will never be open. So what we're seeing is that Our salvation depends on God, and the salvation of others depends on God, even though we go as faithful messengers to preach the gospel to a dead and dying world. Each one of our eyes must have been opened if we come. And those whom we preach to, their eyes must be opened, their hearts must be changed, they must be given ears to hear. That's what Paul is getting at. And if we read the book of Acts, and I'm following a very godly man by the name of Ligon Duncan following his commentary here. If we look at the gospel or the the, the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes when the gospel is preached. And it's when the Holy Spirit comes that people's lives are changed and they respond. I mean, could you imagine Peter in those 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and, and ascension, if he was trying to do the work in his own power? Like, it's a really good thing that he decided to go fishing because he would have screwed the whole thing up. But he, he went to the upper room and the Holy Spirit came in power and then the church blossomed. Without the preaching of the gospel accompanied by the presence of the Spirit, we have no hope. But since the gospel is preached and the Spirit comes as he wishes, 
we trust that we have everything that we need now and to welcome others into the church as well. Let's close our time this morning by reading our passage backwards, starting in verse 5. Here's my paraphrase. You can be assured of your salvation because the gospel has come to you in word, but not only in word, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can be assured of your salvation because God has set his love and chosen you from before the foundation of the world, and it doesn't depend on you. And you can be assured of your salvation because God is now your father. He is the vine dresser. And since you are connected to the vine of Jesus Christ, you will and you are producing fruit in the Lord Jesus Christ. So be your own good fruit inspector. Brothers and sisters, let's receive and rest upon that. Let's glory in the simple message of the gospel afresh this morning. And as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, it is all to the praise of God's glorious grace. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you. We thank you, dear God and Father, for our salvation, for loving us in your Son, Jesus Christ, because of what he has done. And because he left nothing undone. So we thank you for faith that works, for love that labors, and for the steadfastness of hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you hear us when we pray. Oh, what a comfort it is to your people that we have a God who hears. So hear our prayer now in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.